You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14 uh, together. We're studying this letter from Paul to the church in Colossae. And um, we're going to look at verses 9 through 14. I hope that you've made a little bit of attempt or effort maybe to work on your uh, memory verse this week. Um, or for the month, I should say, Colossians 1.18. And uh, I, I think I promised you that we might have a quiz uh, from time to time. And uh, so if we could get the quiz up there. Okay, there we go. So we've got a bit of a puzzle here and uh, some big words uh, to remember. So let's see if you can do it. Many of you are looking at your Bibles, which is a normally great thing to do, but this is a quiz. You're not allowed to look at the Bible. You're supposed to have this in your heart and mind. And he is the head, uh uh-oh, gave you the answer of the what? Body. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, preeminent. Eight of you got a (laughs) hundred. In terms of having a vision for our church, there is no greater vision than I can put before you than that of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We want him to be preeminent in everything. Uh, Everything, surpassing everything in priority. Our church is his church. We exist for him. We are sustained by him. Everything we have is from him. And everything we do is to him, to his glory. That he might be preeminent in everything and the very goal and climax of our lives is seeing him face to face in heaven and so we want all that we have uh, to go towards knowing him and living for him that's what Paul is talking about this morning in our text Colossians 1 9 through 14 he writes and so from the day we heard we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. You would increase and I would decrease and that your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we've noted from verses 1 through 8 so far in our study that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing this letter to the church in Colossae on behalf of Jesus. And this is a relatively young in the faith congregation. They heard the gospel from one of their own, Paul says, a man by the name of Epaphras, who likely heard the gospel from Paul. Epaphras came and shared it with the Colossians, and so there's the beginning of this little church there in Colossae. And Paul is reminding them, wants to reassure them rather, that the gospel that they heard from Epaphras is actually the true gospel. They wanted to make sure that that was true and that everything that Paul has heard about them, he writes, uh, their faith in Christ, Uh, Their love for all the saints there, verse 4, their hope in heaven, that that these are in fact, that they are in fact true Christians. They've heard the true gospel, they're true believers in Christ. And Paul is writing because he wants them to continue in Christ. Uh, I think the theme of his letter might be found over in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted in and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving he's writing to them to for them to know that the same word of truth the gospel that they received from Epaphras uh, is the same word of truth that Paul is preaching to them and it's the same word of truth that has led them to Christ and it's the same word of truth that is going to uh, that they would be built up and grow in Christ Now, Mark Johnston writes this, it's often tempting to think that the Bible is not enough to bring us into the fullness of what we are meant to be as Christians. But again and again, it reminds us that under normal circumstances, the Holy Spirit uses his living word to do just that. It is not something extra that we need, but a fuller appreciation of what we have already been given. Now, I think that has a particular relevance and application for the church today, not just our church, but, but every church, because I think it's very tempting to think that, that growth and, and the revitalization of a local church is found in better plans and more programs and, and vision statements. And, and I'm not against planning and thinking ahead. That is certainly a wise thing that we ought to do, and I'm certainly not against the church growing. We want our church to grow spiritually and numerically. But I would caution you about thinking that we need something more than Christ and his word to revitalize and unite our church together. If we cannot get a vision for our church and find common ground and excitement in following after Christ and his word, there is not a clever enough plan or a creative enough vision that can help. We do not need uh, something extra, as Johnston said. We need a fuller appreciation of what we have already been given in Christ and his word. This is what Paul is reminding the Colossians of, that that we, uh, we have all that we need in Christ and his word to live the Christian life and to be the church that God has called us to be. Because at the end of the day, only Christ can revitalize and unite his church together. Now, as we study this letter, we're going to see several distinctives 
I think of what this looks like, of what it means to be a church that's rooted and built up in Christ Jesus. I think we see one of those today. If you're taking notes, just, just you know, we'll get to the outline in just a moment. Ceaseless prayer is one of those things that should distinct us as, as a church. Verse 9, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why does Paul pray ceaselessly for them? I think it's the same reason he says back up in verse 3 when he says we always thank God when we pray for you. Why does he pray all the time for them? Because the stuff that we call revitalization is not something that we do, but something rather that God does in our church. Paul thanks God, he says, for their faith in Christ, verses 3 and 4, and their love for one another and their hope in heaven, precisely because Paul nor the Colossians had done any of those things. God had done that to them. Church, we are utterly dependent on the work of God in our lives to live the Christian life, to be the church that he has called us to be, to save us and to sanctify us. It does not mean that we don't have any part to play. But at the end of the day, Paul reminds us that it is a work of God and apart from him, we can do nothing. And so we want to be a church that is committed to prayer, a vision. What's a vision for our church? We want to be a church that is ceaselessly praying. We want to be corporate, uh, corporately praying together. We want to encourage one another to pray in our individual and personal lives uh, to the Lord. Uh, we, we've, we've tried to do some things to, to stimulate that, and we're always striving to do that. Last year, we did 40 days of prayer. How many of you remember that leading into Easter? Okay, you get extra credit on the quiz next week. Um, we're going to try to do that again this year, probably mid-February, 40 days leading up to Easter, 40 days of prayer in the life of our church. We can be praying about the same things together, and uh, we're going to continue to look for ways to encourage that and to teach that. By the way, Paul gives us a lesson uh, in prayer right here, doesn't he? What does he say? Pray without ceasing. Make prayer a regular part of your day. Pray regularly. Pray continually. Pray often. Take everything to the Lord in prayer. He also gives us some instruction of what to pray for, doesn't he? Paul asks God that the Colossian Christians be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, what does that mean? That's a lot of words. I don't think that means Paul is praying for the Colossians to know the will of God in terms of who they're supposed to marry or, or whether they're supposed to take a new job or not or this, and, and it's fine to pray for those things. I don't think that's what he means here, though. He's speaking, though, he says, notice the words, a knowledge of God's will that involves spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's interesting, those words. If you turn over to chapter 2 for a moment, in verse 2, the latter part of that, Paul will use those very words again. And he says his desire for the Colossians is that they would grow in understanding and knowledge, there's our words, of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of, here's our words again, wisdom and knowledge. So notice those three words. This time Paul reveals what knowledge he's talking about. He's talking about our knowledge of Christ. 
So when he prays for him in chapter 1, verse 9, to be filled with the knowledge of his will, Paul is praying for them that they would grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. They would grow in their knowledge of the salvation that they have in him. And furthermore, they would grow in their knowledge of how God intends for them to live out their salvation. That's what he says, right? Verse 9, the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So this knowledge of the will that he's praying about is about knowing Christ so as to walk or to live in a manner worthy and pleasing to him. Now, Paul is about to present to us this breathtaking picture, beginning in verse 15, about the majesty and wonder and supremacy of Christ in all things. But before he does that, he prays for them. I'm praying that he says that you're going to see and know Jesus more clearly. I love how John Piper explains this. He says, as we see Jesus more clearly and what God has done for us in Christ, the gospel gets bigger and bigger in our hearts. His death becomes more wonderful. His resurrection becomes more astonishing. Our sin becomes more disgusting. The devil seems more evil. The restoring work of the Spirit gets mightier. The global spread of the gospel becomes more important. The connections between everything in the Bible become more clear. Our yearning for eternity becomes greater. And love of God becomes more delightful in our lives. Beloved, that's exactly the kind of revitalizing work that we need God to do in our hearts. Amen? Not in our church, but just in our church, but in every church that claims to follow Christ. That's Paul's prayer. I would just ask, are those the kinds of things that you're praying for? Have you prayed for any of those things lately? Uh, For your brothers and sisters in Christ, have you prayed that they would be filled in this way? For our church... Paul says that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. You might say this is a prayer for both learning and living. And the two go very much hand in hand together, don't they? Learning and living. It's a prayer for knowledge, but not just knowledge's sake, but so that we might live out that knowledge of Christ so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, Paul goes on to develop that even further. We're getting to our outline this morning, verses 10 through 14, because there he describes what he means when he says, walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord, in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to him. Before we start there, I want you to note, Paul is not talking about our worthiness. No one in here is worthy of anything before the Lord. Amen? And, and that someone can live a good life, a really good life, and that that somehow is going to make them worthy before God, worthy to stand before him someday, and you tell him about all the good things you did to get into heaven. That is a false gospel. It's the very opposite of what Paul 
teaches. No one is worthy before God. That's what he says. And no one can be made worthy before God because of their good works. What The worthiness that Paul is talking about here is the worthiness of Christ. He's talking about the value of Jesus. The point, his point is that Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy of, of our lives, of our complete and, and unqualified dedication and devotion to him and that we should live in such a way, as such a life of obedience to him because he is worthy of such a life. People should encounter us perhaps and then observe in us that what a great God we must serve, what a great Savior we must have and that we, because we live a certain, a certain way. That's what he's saying. Notice four ways that Paul describes the life that is pleasing to Christ. First of all, he says it's a life of bearing fruit. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Here's the first one, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, Paul assumes that if a person has received Christ, believed the gospel, been delivered from the darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light, the, the God's beloved son, Jesus, that as a result, this person is going to bear outward fruit of that. Where did Paul get such theology? Well, he got this from Jesus, you understand. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus sent by him. Jesus said in Luke 6, 43, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Now, Paul will spell this out clearly in this familiar passage um, talking about fruit, as he said to the Galatians, Galatians 5, he says, now the works, and you could even uh, put the fruit, if you want to use that in a negative term, of the flesh, the works or the fruit of flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and he says, I could go on, right? Things like these. It's a list of sins. And he says, I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, he's saying very clearly there, if you have been saved and God's Spirit has come to live in your life, you will find that the works of your flesh are decreasing. The works of your sin are decreasing and the fruit of the Spirit is increasing in your life. Paul, Paul is saying the same thing here in Colossians. It's just shorthand, right? He just says, bearing fruit in every good work. This is, this, is a, this is the result. Ephesians 2, 9 and 10, Paul says we're not saved by our work, but we are saved to do good works. Good work will inevitably flow out of a saved heart. The Spirit will produce fruit that results in good works. Now, this is, I think, really important today. 
Um, I was reading Sam Storm's his devotional on Colossians this week. He asked this question in his devotional. Can a person know God in the way Paul is describing in verse 9? Have a knowledge of God and not bear the fruit of holiness. That's an important question because, you know, surveys are done all the time. George, I think of George Barna here some years ago where he, he did some survey. He said that 77 million Americans, 77 million are claimed to be born again, saved Christians. But with little fruit or any to show for it. Now, now we're not infallible judges of the human heart, Right? But we are, in a sense, fruit inspectors. First of, of my own heart, but then also from those claiming to know Christ. And I share the concern of storms and others that there, I, I fear that there are countless people who are living a religious charade, who have perhaps been assured by well-intentioned ministers over the years that because you raised your hand or you signed a card or you prayed a prayer or you got wet, um, that uh, you, you are saved in spite of the fact that there is little, if any, fruit in your life of such. Now, now you're, you're a reasonable person here um, to think this, but, but I would just ask the question, what kind of salvation did you receive? What kind of salvation leaves you in the darkness of your sins without change? I'll tell you what kind. No salvation at all does that. Paul's prayer for the Colossians is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, knowledge of Christ. But beloved, that knowledge leads us to mortify our sins. And follow him, bearing fruit, he says. That's the first one. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Christ? Well, it, it's a life of fruit bearing. Uh, secondly, it's a life that is increasing in knowledge. That's the second phrase he uses there in verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. All right, he's praying for them. They're going to be filled with this knowledge. But here, his expectation more specifically is that they will be increasing in that knowledge. What does that mean? Well, again, we, we come back to what is, seems to be par for the course today. Nine, some, some have estimated some nine out of ten Americans own a Bible. Um, but, but sadly, most, most of those folks have no idea of what it says. In fact, many Christians don't know what it says. And the result is, in, our, in, in Christianity today, there, there is this woeful ignorance. There is this lack of discernment between good theology and bad. I, I think of Paul's words in Ephesians 4.14, which says, So many are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. David Garland summarizes the urgency of this. Every spiritual crisis, he notes, derives from a failure to know God. When people shut God out of their knowledge, 
Romans 1 tells us God gives them over to a depraved mind. And the result is moral decadence and confusion and and judgment. Secondly, Christians, he says, need to grow in their knowledge of God's word. It's an indictment when the writer of Hebrews says, uh, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Third, our knowledge should result in more fruit-bearing. Because it's not just about knowing, but it's about knowing that leads to living. And then fourth, knowledge of God results in understanding so that we're not taken by surprise or led astray. In other words, it helps us guard against false teaching when it comes into the church. It helps us to be discerning. Now, now this is another distinctive, I think, another piece of the vision. We talk about vision for the church of, of, of versus Christ, but, but we want to be about ceaseless prayer. Secondly, we want to be grounded in the word of God. We want to be a church that is rooted and guided by the truth of God's word. We want to be, uh, we want to be known for rigorous uh, biblical and moral training. We're preaching and teaching us from the word of God. We're, it's, uh, it's, it's not just a few stories and, and jokes and life lessons and then just a few verses added on to the end so that we've looked at the scripture. But no, where the scripture is actually explained. And, and it's taught and it's faithfully applied, verse by verse. We, we want to be a people of the word so that we're not tossed to and fro by the waves of our culture, carried about by every wind of doctrine. People who actually can discern right from wrong and people who actually can discern truth from error and who can rightly divide the word of truth and apply it to their lives. That's what we strive for. I think that's what Paul's praying for here. It's part of what pleases Christ, living a life, bearing fruit, he says, increasing in knowledge of God. Third, Paul describes it as being empowered. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. So he's praying for us to have spiritual discernment of God's will, but also then divine power to do it. Now, this is implying certain things, isn't it? The fact that we need this divine power. I mean, why doesn't he just say, do it? Here's what you're supposed to do, do it. (laughs) He says, you need divine power to do this. Why? This implies that there's going to be challenges to living the Christian life. Does anybody find the Christian life challenging to live? Oh my goodness, the rest of you may be sleeping. First, if you know yourself at all, you know there's challenges that are within you to living the Christian life, don't you? Your flesh. I mean, we, we may know what we should do, but our, our flesh wants to do something else. We need to be, he says, strengthened with power, but what he's talking about here is not willpower. He's not talking about being strengthened by our own power. He's saying by his glorious power. Paul says, I'm praying that you're going to be so filled with the knowledge of God's will that the might of the glory of the Lord will empower you. What an extraordinary thing to pray. 
He also says two other things of why this is important. He says, for all endurance and patience. So there's not just going to be challenges from within side. That's enough trouble. I got enough trouble in here. But he's telling me there's going to be challenges from the outside that hinders my Christian life. Endurance implies that there's going to be circumstances, difficulties, obstacles that are going to come. And the fact that he's saying, I'm praying for you about this, you're going to have to, the, the trust that you put into Christ, you're going to have to rely on those roots. And sometimes you're just going to have to lift your head and put your focus on Christ and put the one foot in front of the other and keep going. And as you do so, know that I'm going to be empowering you, he says. The second thing, patience there, differs from endurance, is that I think this is involving people. Chapter 3, verse 12, he Paul will exhort us to put on patience, that is to bear with one another. That, that means a lot of things, doesn't it? Not retaliating against those who might harm you. It, it means forgiving one another. It means loving one another even when they're hard to love. Well, again, how do we do this? How do we keep going? How do we have this patient endurance? Well, beloved, it's not our might that helps us. It's the Lord's might. Again, Sam Storms, there's no addiction God's power cannot break, no sin God's power cannot defeat, no task to which we are called that God's power cannot fulfill, no fruit we are called to bear that God's power cannot produce, no broken marriage God's power cannot reconcile. It is a glorious and majestic power, isn't it? And that's the only kind of power that can help us to live a life worthy of Christ. Finally, the fourth thing, a life pleasing to Christ, he says, Paul says, is a life of giving thanks. You see it there at the end of verse 11, with joy, giving thanks to the Father. We're suddenly back to where he started at in verse 3, where he's always thanking God when he's praying, and now he's calling us to join him in giving thanks. He's praying for us. I want you to have the knowledge of God's will it's going to lead you to live for Christ. And part of that living for Christ, he says, is going to be this joyful, heartfelt, thankful attitude toward God in, in all things. And I remind you, this comes on the heels of endurance and patience, of enduring all the troubles and patience with all difficult people. His command here to give thanks, I think, is much more than just a feeling in which we have no control, but something that we pray for and that we practice, isn't it? Both. An attitude and an action in which we both discipline ourselves and depend on God to produce in us. Just briefly, our time is up, but notice how Paul roots our thanksgiving in three precious gifts for God. Very quickly, if you're struggling to be thankful today, consider these things. First of all, he says, remember, God has qualified us for heaven. Verse 12, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life, in light. That's a wonderful phrase. That means that God has met all of the conditions necessary for you to go to heaven. Can you not say amen to that today? 
No one can qualify themselves. I don't care how good you are. But the good news of the gospel is God has qualified us in Christ. Secondly, how has he done this? Verse 13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What a picture. Here we were, slaves in the domain of darkness of our sins, but God delivered us. And he just, in his amazing power, he, he just transferred us into his kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. Of course, this great deliverance took place at the cross of Jesus Christ, didn't it? Where he paid our ransom, he paid for the guilt of our sins, he purchased us for himself as his people. And when you put your faith in Christ, this happened. God transfers you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. Thirdly, he says, we are forever forgiven. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If we had not been purchased from the slave market, we would have died there forever separated from him. But in his purchase of us, Jesus took our sins away. How could you not be thankful about that, Christian, today? How can that not color everything about your life? These things are true for us who are Christians. And it's why we live with such gratitude. It's why joyful thanksgiving shapes everything about our our lives. And so I would just ask this morning, are these things true in your life? Have you been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son? That, that is, that's a remarkable thing. Be, be, be cautious. Think about this. Has this happened to you? And if you say, yes, this has happened to me, then I ask you, are you bearing fruit? Are you increasing in knowledge of God and his word? Are you growing in your dependence on him every day to live the Christian life? And are you increasingly thankful? Because those are the things, those are the things that characterize someone who's living a life in a manner worthy of Christ, pleasing to him. Lord, I pray that we have made your word as clear as possible today. And now that by your Holy Spirit, you would work in our hearts and lives. You would help us as we ask these questions of ourselves to ask these questions in light of your word. Like a man standing in front of a mirror that tells the truth, that reflects the truth. Your word is truth. So, Lord, if there are things in our lives that places that we're, we're not bearing fruit and increasing in our knowledge of the word and growing in thanksgiving and depending on you, Lord, you would reveal those things now that we might repent of them, turn from them, and turn to you in obedience. And we pray for those, Lord, who may be here, even, even this morning, who could not answer that question, have they been delivered from the darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son? Lord, open their eyes to see the opportunity that is before them today, that you are a God standing with your arms 
open, ready to receive those who call on your name for salvation. May they come to you today. May they come to you now. Lord, help us as we finish our service this morning to to give thanks for the great thing that you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.